Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast, and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 74, The Spanish Playhouse, its manager, his actors, and their audience. Last time, theatre on the Iberian Peninsula developed as religious theatre slowly turned to tragedy, and the copying of Greek and Roman theatre developed into storytelling that retold Spanish myths and legends. Throughout this development, and the earlier changes I discussed in the first episode on Spanish theatre, the place where theatre was performed also changed and developed, until the Spanish Playhouse came into its own. So in this episode, I'm going to look specifically at how and why the theatre buildings in Spain developed, and also about the life of the Spanish actor during the Renaissance, and particularly in the time of the Spanish Golden Age, from the end of the 16th century through to the 17th. Prior to the mid to late 16th century, Spanish theatre followed more or less the pattern we've seen in the rest of Europe. Religious theatre was presented on public holidays and other religious days, while the royal courts and noble houses were entertained by amateurs or travelling players who performed liturgical plays and light comedies derived from Roman theatre via Italy or local adapters. In the universities, students performed Plautus and Terence, sometimes in Latin, but increasingly translated into the local Spanish dialects, until a liking for tragedy developed and became part of the offering that playwrights made for the general theatre-going public. In the early part of the period, theatre for the common people was performed on crude stages in whatever space the travelling players and itinerant entertainers could commandeer or negotiate. When Miguel de Cervantes recalled these primitive stages that he'd seen in his youth some 50 years before, he was unforgiving, describing them as crude and elementary, composed of four boards arranged in a square corner with five or six boards laid across them to provide a platform a few feet from the ground. He described the additional stage equipment as sparse and rudimentary, an old blanket drawn aside by two cords, making what they call a tiring room. This crude curtain didn't only hide the attiring actors. There were musicians there who sung the old ballads, but often it was done with little or no accompaniment. By about 1560, theatrical companies began to become established in most of the major cities, as the traditional auto-sacramental and tableau and miracle plays evolved into truly secular theatre. Valencia led the way, and established probably the first permanent theatre building in 1566, the Corral de la Olivera. Corral meaning courtyard in Spanish. The earliest theatres were simply the open space within or between buildings put to theatrical use, and the name stuck, even when used later for purpose-built playhouses, because they too incorporated existing open spaces. In Seville, the establishment of a commercial theatre was very much linked to the works of Lupe de Rueda, whose work I discussed last time. After his death in 1565, theatre in the city continued to develop, especially in the 1570s under the influence of the Italian impresario Alberto Ganassa. His influence is significant, but mostly in Madrid, so more of that in a moment. In Seville, the plays of Juan de la Cueva, who was also mentioned last episode, were performed in the late 1570s and 1580s in the several open-air theatres in the city. Meanwhile, playhouses in other Spanish cities were being built. Before the turn of the century, theatre was established in Toledo, Barcelona, Zaragoza, Granada and Zamora, where a courtyard of a hospital was used. In 1561, King Philip II was four years into his rule when he decided to move his court to Madrid. Although there was never a decree to make Madrid the capital, it became so by default. 
The city underwent a huge expansion off the back of the presence of the court, with the population rising from about 20,000 to over 100,000 by the end of the 17th century. The city became affluent, and certainly the theatrical capital, by 1585. What marked a real change in theatre building came slightly before that, with a visit to Spain by the Italian Commedia dell'arte troupe headed by Alberto Ganassa in 1574. The troupe were made very welcome and enjoying much popularity, first in Seville and then in Madrid, the players chose to remain for several years. In the new capital, they built a temporary theatre called the Corral de Pesha. It was a style of theatre building that was a significant development on the open-air corrals that had been put to use so far, and a form that was new to Spain. It became the prototype that Spanish theatres were to follow for centuries to come. So, although he was Italian, a quick word now about Alberto Ganassa. He was born Alberto Nacelli, about 1540. He took his professional name from a character he invented, and is recorded as performing at the theatrical hotspots of Mantua in 1568 and Ferrera in 1570. In 1571 he led a troupe to Paris, and they were most likely the first Italian troupe to perform there. In 1572, the troupe was the entertainment at the wedding of Margaret of Valois, sister of the French king Charles IX, and Henry of Navarre. Their arrival in Seville and then in Madrid followed soon after. During their time in Spain, they also performed at Valladolid, Guadalajara and Toledo, and so their influence spread. The development of the Spanish playhouse and the business model of the acting companies are thought to have been directly influenced by the requirements of Ganassa and the Commedia dell'arte troupe. So what of the Spanish playhouse, the Corral? As already mentioned, it made use of the courtyards between neighbouring buildings or any similar area that was large enough for the performance and the gathering of a decent audience. This was not dissimilar to the courtyards of inns and university spaces used in other European countries at about the same time, but in Spain the courtyards were used on a more permanent basis. At one end, a roofless platform was constructed as a stage with the facades of the surrounding houses being used as the only backdrop to the action of the play. Most such homes featured balconies on the upper floors, and these were used both as additional stages and viewing places. Most of the audience stood or were seated on rows of benches rising in tiers, but some windows in nearby buildings were appropriated for privileged onlookers, and the nobility might have chairs on stage sharing it with the actors. At one side of the podium was a gallery reserved for women, segregated for modesty's sake. The segregation of women was to remain a feature of Spanish theatre and a whole culture around how ladies could communicate with male members of the audience from afar developed over time. There was no front curtain, but at the back of the main stage area there was an inner stage, curtained off. That curtain could be opened at the appropriate moment to provide an interior setting, a study or a bedroom or the like or the surprise reveal of a previously unseen character. Above, the balconies could be used as an upper stage. These were simply reached by a ladder and used to represent the balcony of a home, the tower of a castle, maybe a dangerous cliff edge, the citadel of a city under siege, and of course, the meeting place of lovers. As these stage areas were bare of scenery, the setting had to be suggested in the prose or poetry of the play itself. Through the text, settings could be changed in just a few words, or crafted in detail with lyrical descriptions. The actors made their entrances and exits from the side of the stage, or from the curtained-off dressing room at the rear of the stage. 
There are occasional mentions of stage machinery, so it seems likely that trapdoors in the floor of the stage and machinery to hoist angels to heaven and the like were used in some chorales. Generally, the lack of scenery encouraged the playwrights to use an episodic style, with rapid shifts in location and time, so the bounds of the Aristotelian unities were soon broken. The temptation to take an audience on a rapid journey through time and location was just too much to resist. It was something of a self-indulgence that didn't always work. The concision and discipline enforced by following Aristotle's precepts had, in the best of plays, resulted in a compression of action and plays that had a lot of dramatic impact. In some cases, these newly accepted freedoms led to a loss of these important features. Though intended to be temporary, Ganassa's chorale was a significant improvement on others up to that time and quickly recognised as such. Shortly after he had opened his doors there, permanent theatres that incorporated many of the same features were built in Madrid and Valencia as a direct response to the public's growing fondness for Italian entertainments. In what initially seemed like a strange move, these theatres were built by monks. The first two in Madrid were the Corral de la Cruz and the Corral del Principe, built in 1579 and 1582 respectively. A third playhouse was then added soon after. Other cities soon followed suit, with theatre buildings commencing in Seville, Burgos, Barcelona, Cordoba and Granada. A royal decree was enacted that gave the privilege of operating the theatres in Madrid and sponsoring the visiting troops of actors who performed in them to three charitable organisations, and hence the involvements of the monks in their creation. A governing body, the Brotherhood of the Sacred Passion, was created to oversee the distribution of the income. The city's general hospital was the main beneficiary of this arrangement, with established charities dedicated to distributing food and clothing to the poor, also receiving some benefits. The income distributed to these charities was essentially the profit from ticket sales, and it was an arrangement that remained in place until 1615. At that point, responsibility for supporting the hospital and the other church-led charities was passed to the city government, who then taxed the theatres for more or less the same level of income. A major benefit of these arrangements was that although the power of the church was greater in Spain for a longer period than in many other parts of Europe, the Spanish theatres actually suffered less interference than was seen in other parts of the continent. With the charitable income being generated, both the church and the city governors had an interest in the theatres being as popular as possible and there was a reluctance to indulge in any heavy-handed censorship that might reduce their earning capacity. Although it's not explicit in any records, this may have played into the fact that the playwrights and actors were, with a few notable exceptions, relatively untouched by the scrutiny of the Inquisition. Following that change in Madrid in 1615, town councils then leased theatres to individuals who ran them on a commercial basis. The charities still benefited from the theatre income, it's estimated that they got about two-fifths of the total income, but the arrangements were becoming more arm's length and inevitably they began to have less influence on the theatres themselves and the content of the plays performed. Typically, managers could acquire a theatre lease for a four-year period. In 1638, the situation was confirmed when the ownership of the theatre buildings in Madrid was formally transferred to the city council and two commissioners were appointed, with a brief to ensure their continued smooth running and profitability. As permanent theatres were built in other cities, some changes began to be made. The general patio area design was common throughout, as was the incorporation of existing houses to form part of the enclosed area, but individual theatres by necessity made adaptations appropriate to their specific needs. 
Some had a tavern added to the back of the patio to provide refreshments and seating was then added above this with the upper floors built with tiered seating. Typically, the first level above the tavern was reserved for ladies. The second divided into private boxes and used by councillors and other city dignitaries. And the highest level, referred to as the attic space, was favoured by the clergy and students. At the other end of the patio, in front of the stage, some theatres added seating in a semicircular formation. Owners of buildings adjacent to the acting area saw the advantage of their position and created private boxes on their balconies that were available for hire. Before each performance, the coming attraction was announced by street criers and posters pasted to the walls of buildings on streets near the theatre. Following the purchase of a ticket for admission, most of the audience stood on the yard before the stage, behind a few rows of seating. Known in Spanish as mosqueteros or musketeers, but here that just means standing person, they could be a belligerent audience, who were quick to let the actors know when they were not satisfied with the performance. During intermissions, vendors sold refreshments, the most popular of which was a drink made from a mixture of water, honey and spices. Entrance fees were collected at designated points wherever the crowd could be controlled, with collections being made by pairs of men, one working for the lessee of the theatre, the other for the benefiting charities or the city council. For a while, performances took place only on Sundays and church feast days, but then Ganassa and his troupe were permitted to perform on a weekday, and other companies were soon granted the same permission, but theatres remained firmly shut on Saturdays. The playing season began in September, as the summer heat cooled a little, and lasted until Lent, when the religious privations included the denial of entertainments as elsewhere in Europe. Following that six-week closure, the new season started after Easter and continued until July. Special circumstances might suspend theatrical activity. In 1597, Philip II ordered the theatres to close after the death of his daughter Catherine as a mark of respect. Spain was, of course, also subject to visitations of the plague, where theatre closures were used as a means to try and limit transmission of the disease. An afternoon's entertainment included several pieces in addition to a featured play. Typically, this was musical entertainment and dancing, and maybe additional interludes. When the main play commenced, there was a standard order of musical entertainment that was followed during the production. Preceding the first act, either music was sung or played, or one of three cheerful dances was performed to the accompaniment of music. Next, there was a monologue or dialogue spoken by one or two of the principal members of the cast who sought the goodwill of the audience. Two verse farces or other light farcical pieces were staged between the acts of the play, and the whole spectacle ended with a dance that was matched with a monologue or dialogue accompanied by song, castanets and guitar. As theatres multiplied, so did professional acting companies. Some were short-lived, but soon there were so many that the authorities intervened to limit the number. Records show that in 1603 there were just eight licensed companies, with the number rising to 12 by 1615. However, there were many unlicensed troops in operation, who appear to have been tolerated with a surprising amount of leniency. There are records of many productions by otherwise unknown troops, and certainly far too many to have been performed by 12 troops or less. Actors were contracted with theatre managers for up to two years, and either received a salary set at a specific fee, or agreed to receive a share of profits from the entrance fees after deduction for the production expenses. 
The acting troops were known as Compagnas de Parte, which has no exact translation into English but literally means the company of parts. Troops typically featured 16 to 20 players, mostly made up of adult men and some boys and youths, who played the female roles and were considered the apprentices for the troop, no doubt filling in all sorts of performing and practical roles, both front and backstage, as was required. There's some evidence that by the late 1580s women were occasionally seen on stage, taking those leading female roles from the boys. The presence of women on stage remained a controversial choice for some time to come. Although the church showed toleration of the theatre, the appearance of women on stage really was for them a step too far. In 1596, an appeal was made to King Philip II and a royal proclamation was issued banning women from the stage. However, the effectiveness of that ban is highly questionable. It seems that it was generally ignored. Affronted by such disregard, clerics doubled down on their objections and after a prolonged and furious debate, a stricter edict was issued by the Royal Council. Under the terms of this command, issued in 1598, a woman could not belong to a theatrical company unless her husband or father were also a member. In 1608 and 1615, further rulings were put in place. Now only players were permitted in the backstage area, a move designed to stop assignations with actresses, which had apparently become an issue. In the same edict, friars were forbidden to attend the performances, so presumably there was a problem with them having too much fun at the theatre too. Secular plays were banned from churches, convents and other religious establishments, and the censorship of scripts became more severe. Dancing, which had been a target of much criticism, was completely banned. This was a particularly harsh edict as far as the Spanish audience was concerned. Music and dancing had played an important part in the comic and lighter entertainments at the theatre, both within and between plays. But much as the general audience may have enjoyed these particular skills, the pious could only see behaviours likely to spread immoral thoughts amongst the population. Again, the players ignored the bands where they could, but by the mid-17th century, the use of music and dancing at the theatre had been much reduced, and where it was still used, had taken a much more decorous form. There were fewer restrictions about the nature of costumes to be worn on the stage, and they became a real focus for the Spanish theatre. With no scenery to produce or to impress with, the creative focus turned to the costumes. The costs of costuming were borne by the manager of the theatre, but actors also acquired their own costumes and could receive an additional payment if they could provide suitable costume for a part, perhaps being one that they'd played before. Garments were expected to be bright and colourful. Silks and velvets with extravagant trimmings were the order of the day. Dress was contemporary, with only an emblematic item that might indicate a particular historic period when appropriate. The costs could become very significant, and there are records that suggest troops frequently requested funding for costumes from church and civic sponsors. In some towns, prizes were awarded for the scripts and acting in plays, but also for the best costumes. In 1534, Charles V tried to curb the excessive outlays with a decree and subsequent administrations continued to enforce some limits. In 1653, women were singled out for the lavishness of their attire. By a decree, they were not permitted to appear on stage wearing strange headdresses, low necklines, wide hooped skirts or dresses that did not reach the floor. In addition, they were not allowed costume changes, but had to keep the same garments throughout unless the script required them to make a change. But still, costuming veered to the extravagant. 
A record from 1589 says that an actor paid 1,100 reals, and in 1619 another paid 2,400 reals for a single costume, sums that were something equivalent to about a third of the typical actor's annual income. For some actors, the personal costume wardrobe was his greatest financial asset and could help him secure employment, or in harder times, be pawned for some ready cash. The life of the actor was still an uncertain one, but perhaps just a little better than in some other countries, as the actor's contracts in Spain were a little more secure. When employed, an actor was expected to have the script learnt early and be at rehearsals during the morning. Performances took place in the afternoon, starting at 2 or 3 o'clock depending on the time of year, so the evenings were free, and actors often supplemented their salary at the playhouse by performing for noble families in their homes as an evening's entertainment, or at inns for the same purpose. For the most popular troops of actors working in Madrid, the call might come from the royal palace, where performances were frequently requested. In fact, such undeniable requests often disrupted the schedule of public performances and were the cause of resentment towards the king amongst the theatre-going audience. Touring still made up a large part of the acting life for many in the profession, and although it was undoubtedly as arduous as elsewhere, in Spain troop members typically received compensation for travel expenses, suggesting that things were perhaps a little easier than in other parts of Europe. Italian troops remained popular throughout the period. Besides Ganassa, at least two other troops visited Madrid regularly and enlivened the theatrical scene there and elsewhere. Despite the popularity of theatre and the financial contribution it made to charities, actors were still regarded as a dubious lot by the church. Access to the sacraments were denied to actors, which was a restriction that dated back to a 13th century edict when King Alfonso X of Castile had them designated as infame, following the old Roman designation for the lowest in society. It was a designation that was not officially revoked until about a hundred years ago. Away from the church, the low standing and official approbation of actors was more or less overlooked. Actors were needed initially for the religious plays and the autosacramental, and then were just a bit too popular and liked by royalty and the nobility to be erased completely. The charitable outcomes of the art could always be played up, so, with the exception of the most vociferous critics, the church had to take up a stance of quiet toleration. Players were finally permitted to set up and join a guild in 1631 the Confadida de la Naverna, which was a self-funded guild that gave the profession, if not the individuals, a status equal to that of other guilds. An early roster of members includes the names of 2,000 members, and the guild still exists today. The proliferation of permanent theatre buildings across Spain towards the end of the 16th century and the beginning of the 17th is testament to its enduring popularity. Madrid remained the cultural heart of the country, and the two original playhouses in the city survived for nearly 200 years, undergoing a series of updates and modifications during that time. In the mid-1700s, they were pulled down and replaced by entirely new theatre buildings. The modern Teatro Español still stands on the original site of the Corral de la Principe. Court theatres, in which both professional actors and courtiers performed, were also established to produce festival spectacles for specific occasions. One of the first was a chorale set up for performances on a patio at the Royal Palace in Madrid in 1607. 
In the 1620s, court theatre also became established at Aranquez and Old Alcazar. In 1640, the royal family were entertained at the Coliseo Theatre in the Buen Retiro Palace in Madrid, where Cosmo Lotti, a Florentine landscape architect who'd been brought to Spain by Philip IV, designed elaborate stage decorations. During all of these developments, the position of the dramatist also began to change. So far in the Renaissance period, we have met playwrights for whom plays were a sideline rather than a profession, with a few notable exceptions of course, but typically they were politicians, academics or in religious orders. This was still true in Spain during the 17th century, but there was also a move to a more professional attitude to the work that was being created. As I've already mentioned in the context of Italy and France, there was no copyright law at the time and borrowing from another playwright was mostly seen as a compliment. In Spain, we begin to see a different attitude. Most dramatists sold their plays to the master of a travelling troupe and later to the manager of a theatre. Depending on the stature of the playwright, the deal struck could be on the basis of a one-off fee or for a share of profits. Either way, it was at this point that the author lost control of his work. There was none of the respect for the author's intentions that we see today. The managers often altered the manuscripts, changes that would then get incorporated into the working scripts and the gospel of the production, the prompt copy. The copied scripts would then be retained by the company for potential future use, without further benefit to the author. The situation for the author was further complicated because once the work was being seen by the public, lesser authors, or at least less scrupulous ones, could lift sections of work to insert into their own, without fear of any action against them. To try to defend against this and to establish their ownership of the original work, playwrights started to work at publishing their plays. This didn't mean that copying of work stopped, but the better and more widely known a work was, then the less likely it was to be blatantly copied. With advancements in printing, it became possible to publish a collection of plays and, for the most popular authors, have thousands of copies available to sell across the country. Sometimes authors had to fund or part-fund this activity themselves. Sometimes they had to retrieve prompt copies from the theatre managers and rework them to their own satisfaction before issuing them to the printer. The result was typically a collection of 12 plays, and it's thanks to this that we have so many plays from the period preserved. The output of Spanish dramatists in the Renaissance was huge. Some estimates put the number as high as 30,000 scripts through the 16th and 17th centuries, an enormous number by any benchmark. The growth in performance troops and theatre buildings in the 17th century supports these kinds of numbers. Some of the plays are very short, just interludes and short comic skits in many cases, and many are highly derivative or direct copies of other earlier or contemporary works, but still, it's an immense creative output. So you can appreciate that the plays and playwrights that I've discussed in the last two episodes are only the tip of a very large number of both, and I've only been able to mention those that made a real impact on the art or progressed it in a tangible way. Those plays and playwrights fed a large industry and profession. During the first third of the 17th century, it's estimated that 100 theatrical managers were active, each of whom staged between 20 and 40 plays a year. Often, a play was given only one or at most a few performances, so there was a large requirement for new plays. Those troops needed actors, and it's estimated, based on the level of known activity and the roles of the Actors Guild, 
that at its height the theatrical profession probably employed 2,000 actors at any one time. The growth of theatre in Spain was a reflection of the growing confidence of the country, through the period as it became not just a unified country, but the heart of a transatlantic empire. And that is perhaps one of the reasons why we can draw parallels with the English stage of the same period, which shares many similarities with the Spanish theatre. There were political affiliations between the two countries, but of course, a little later, some serious military threats between them too. And both were creating empires that stretched across the known world. Both were forming a theatre that can be considered a national theatre, a theatre that reached all of the people, from those standing on the floor of the yard or the patio, to those in the boxes, private rooms or balconies. We'll come back to the Spanish Playhouse and look at it in much more detail. But before we do that, in the next episode, I'm going to look at the life and works of the acknowledged greatest dramatist of the Spanish Golden Age. Indeed, for some, he is the Spanish Golden Age. This playwright was hugely prolific, but also is credited with producing work that had new insights and depths that had not been seen in his predecessors, and he stands head and shoulders above his contemporaries. Next time, we will meet Lupe de Vega. In the meantime, please do join us on the Facebook group or page to keep up to date with what's happening on the podcast. If you'd like to support what I'm doing, you can tip me for a coffee at ko-fi.com or sign up on Patreon for a small monthly fee. Following the completion of my series on Henslow's Diary, the latest pieces are some thoughts on the changing theatre audience and an appreciation of some of the work of the late, great Sir Anthony Sher. There are links in the show notes. Thanks everyone for your continued support for the podcast. Please do spread the word and help others to find us here. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. (laughs) Thank you.